Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute. And once again, welcome. Imagine, if you can, the leading Roman Catholic theologians sitting at a table with leading Protestant luminaries who are not nominal Protestants at all, but some of the most reliable and dependable and conspicuous exemplars of the Protestant theology of justification by faith. And imagine that this group of leading Roman Catholic and Protestant figures agreed together on a statement of justification by faith. And then imagine that this really happened in 1541. And then ask why it is we don't hear very much at all about this rather extraordinary event. Good day to you. I'm Mark Garcia, President and Fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone Theological Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you today to episode number 25 of Greystone Conversations. In 1541, leading Catholic and Protestant negotiators agreed on a brief statement on justification by faith. It is article number five of the Regensburg Colloquy. Martin Luther described it as an inconsistent patchwork of contradictory ideas, largely rejecting the agreement that had been reached by these Roman Catholics alongside Bootser and Calvin and others. John Calvin's assessment is that it contained the substance of the true doctrine of justification by faith. And both views, Luther's and Calvin's, have been held ever since when it comes to interpreting the Regensburg Colloquy of 1541. In today's episode of Greystone Conversations, we feature a presentation by Professor Anthony N.S. Lane, or A.N.S. or Tony Lane, who is Professor of Historical Theology at London Theological Seminary and the author of many books and essays and articles in the history of doctrine. Professor Lane is a specialist on the Regensburg Colloquy, and in particular, the statement it reached on justification by faith. This presentation draws on his 2019 published book, published by Oxford University Press, called the Regensburg Article 5 on Justification, subtitled Inconsistent Patchwork or Substance of True Doctrine. The book argues strongly for Calvin's assessment, again, that the Regensburg Colloquy Article 5 on Justification did indeed represent the substance of the true doctrine. Professor Lane makes his case by examining very carefully the views expressed at the time by the participants in the colloquy and other interested parties who weighed in on it. Why then have we heard so little about Article 5 of the Regensburg Colloquy 
even though leading Roman Catholics and Protestants actually agreed on its doctrinal statement on justification by faith? Well, Article 5 fell from favor only because of misrepresentations of its teaching and because of what was being sought, which was not agreement on one point only, but agreement across the board, which, of course, at this time could not and did not happen. The successes of Regensburg as a colloquy were then set aside and almost wholly forgotten when the Council of Trent reached its determinations shortly after this colloquy in 1541. Well, it is my hope and desire that listening to Professor Lane's expert presentation will lead us in a more nuanced and sophisticated appreciation of the complexities of what was going on during the Reformation, as well as what are and what are not the significant or substantial differences between the late medieval and Roman Catholic doctrine of justification on the one hand and the doctrine of justification confessed in the Reformed tradition on the other. Those differences are monumentally significant and must never be glossed over or overlooked, but in order to be appreciated best, we must understand what they are and what they are not with a responsible view of the historical context in which those differences became clarified. Professor Lane's presentation will help us greatly to that end, I think, and I heartily commend his presentation to you. Thank you once again for spending some time with us today to reflect together on the shape and direction of greater faithfulness to our triune God. And now let us hear Professor Lane on Article 5 of the Regensburg Colloquy as episode number 25 of Greystone Conversations. The Regensburg Article 5 on Justification compromising patchwork or substance of true doctrine. And that, of course, is the title of, of the book, as well as the title of this particular presentation. And in the first part, which we're, we're, we're entering now, I should simply introduce you to some of the key points from the book. But to start with, I realize that everybody may not be equally informed about the Regensburg Colloquy. So I shall start with some basics focusing on the classical six questions. First of all, what? What? Uh, the Regensburg Colloquy was a colloquy or debate between three Catholic and three Protestant theologians aiming to reach an agreed statement, uh, settlement of religion within the Holy Roman Empire, sort of roughly Germany. This was just one of many such attempts, and its main claim to fame is in reach more success than the others. In particular, there was a remarkable agreed statement on justification, Article 5, which appears, of course, is our subject for now. So that's what, when. This took place in 1541, between April and May, alongside the regular imperial diet, which extended to the end of July. Where? Well, as the name indicates, the diet and colloquy took place in Regensburg in Bavaria. And I had the opportunity in 2016 to visit the building where it took place, to take the photograph, which is on the front of the book, and also to see the room where they probably met. Who? Uh, the six debaters or negotiators, the German and Latin words could be translated either way and cover both meanings. The six debaters and negotiators were Johann Gropper, Julius, Julius Plug, and Johann Eck on the Roman Catholic side. Uh, Martin Bucer, Philip Melanchthon, and Johann Pistorius on the Protestant side. These were selected by the emperor 
Charles V, from a larger number of theologians who were present, including Calvin, who came as a representative of the city of Strasbourg at Melanchthon's request. Bucer and Calvin are today seen as reformed theologians, but they were present at Regensburg as Lutherans, having signed the Augsburg Confession in its 1540 variata form. Also present as papal legate was Gasparo Contarini, and he played a crucial role behind the scenes, since the Catholic debaters met with him before and after each session. They could have had what, when, where, who, so how. At the emperor's insistence, the colloquy was based on the document called the Regensburg Book, or more accurately, as in the German literature, as the Worms Book. It was drawn up in secret by Gropper and Bucer at the Worms Colloquy, which took place between November 1540 and January 1541. In the Worms Book, Article 51 on justification was disproportionately long. At Regensburg, they spent several fruitless days discussing it before Eck Melanchthon prevailed upon the others to, to throw it away and start from scratch, a process that was unique to Article 5. And then at least three more drafts were produced by Melanchthon, Eck and Gropper, uh, all, all in the book in Latin and all in translation as well, before the final version was agreed and these all survive. Contrary to some reports in modern literature, the final version of Article 5 has no overlap at all with the original Vaughan's draft. So lastly, why? We might wonder today, what was the point of these debates? Wasn't it clear there couldn't be any common ground? And the answer is, it might be clear to us with the benefit of hindsight, but it wasn't at all clear at the time. In the latter part of the 16th century, Europe divided into rival confessions, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Reformed. With hindsight, this can appear an inevitable outcome, but it did not appear to be inevitable at the beginning, and even today we can't say with certainty that it was an inevitable outcome. Protestantism eventually resolved into Lutheran versus Reformed, but it was not inconceivable that the more moderate elements might have united behind a single Protestant confession. Obviously, the difference between Roman Catholic and Protestant was more substantial, though not as substantial before the Council of Trent, 1545 to 63, as after it. Now, there was every incentive to strive for agreement. It may seem obvious to us today that when Jesus prayed that his church might be one, in John 17, what he really meant was, let there be a competing market of hundreds of different denominations. But that wasn't how it was understood in the 16th century. There was a belief that the church was meant to be one, and the division was a scandal. The reformer's aim was not to found a new church in opposition to the Catholic church, let alone the plethora of churches, but to reform the Catholic Church. The desired outcome was not a church or churches to which people might belong, were they so to desire, but a single church in each locality to which all citizens would belong. Now, of course, the Anabaptists had a very different day, but they weren't involved in these colloquies. 
And then there was another aim of the colloquy, and that was to avoid civil war in Germany. This was not an imaginary danger, and it came to fruition in the following century with the Thirty Years' War between 1618 and 48. Okay, let's turn now to Article 5, an account of, of how it happened. On the 2nd of May, a final version of Article 5 was produced, drawing heavily on Gropper's draft, and to which all the parties gave their consent, although Eck needed some persuasion to sign. Cardinal Contarini was jubilant and expressed his joy to Cardinal Alessandro Farnese, the Pope's grandson in Rome. God be praised, these Catholic and Protestant theologians resolved to agree on the article of justification, faith and works. And in the words of one modern scholar, at Regensburg, the Wittenberg Reformation and the reforming strand of the ancient Italian church joined hands. The initial response was predominantly positive. The Protestant elector of Brandenburg even sent his musicians to serenade Contarini. But the joy and hope engendered were to be short-lived. The colloquy soon began to founder, but that was because of differences on other doctrines, such as the infallibility of councils and transubstantiation, not because of shortcomings in the statement on justification. Ironically, it was the same Contarini who was willing to be flexible on justification who torpedoed the colloquy by his intransigence over the word transubstantiation. He insisted on its inclusion and would not countenance any compromise. While the doctrine of justification had not been defined by the church, transubstantiation had been proclaimed by the Fourth Lateran Council, so he regarded the matter as settled. Ultimately, as on all such occasions, the colloquy foundered over the question of authority. On the 2nd of May, the colloquy came to a close, the article on justification being its only significant achievement. On the 31st of May, the revised version of the Regensburg book was delivered to the emperor, together with nine new articles that the Protestants had composed in opposition to some of the articles in the book where they hadn't agreed uh, with the other side. Protestant reactions to Article 5 were mixed. Luther, who wasn't present, branded it patched and all-embracing. He claimed that the two ideas of justification by faith alone without works and faith working through love had been thrown together and glued together. This is like sewing a new patch onto an old garment. But Calvin, who was present, was much more positive. And I'll quote what he says to Farrell in Switzerland. You will be astonished, I'm sure, that our opponents have yielded so much. Our friends have thus retained also the substance of the true doctrine, so that nothing can be comprehended within it which is not to be found in our writings. You will desire, I know, a clearer exposition, and in that respect you shall find me in complete agreement with yourself. However, if you consider what kind of men we have to agree with upon this doctrine, you will acknowledge that much has been accomplished. Now, I would claim that Calvin was right to claim that there is nothing here that cannot be paralleled in the writings of the Reformers, indeed in his own writings, and that a great deal had been conceded by the other side. 
He was also right to admit that it wasn't perhaps as clearly stated as the reformers would have wished, but that is a minor complaint, given that the article had been accepted by some of the leading Catholic theologians of the day. These two assessments of the article, one as a compromising patchwork, or two as a genuine breakthrough, have been both continued down to the present day. On the Catholic side, Contarini continued to commend and defend the article, as did Gropper and Fluke. Eck, by contrast, sought to distance himself from it. In Rome, the Pope didn't want it to be widely seen, so it wasn't read in consistory. And those who did see it said that though the sense might be Catholic, the wording was too ambiguous. So the Pope neither approved nor disapproved the article. Again, against what you sometimes read, that Rome rejected it. That's not true. Neither approved nor disapproved. It's noteworthy that in these early stages, the charge against Article 5 was ambiguity, not unorthodoxy. And even the hard-like Cardinal of Carafa, later Paul IV, thought it could be given a Catholic mean. So essentially, both the Protestant and Catholic responses were twofold. Some maintained that the Regensburg Article was compatible with their own teaching. Others regarded it as a compromising patchwork that was dangerously ambiguous rather than actually false. Both sides agreed that further explanation was necessary. They were concerned not so much with the content of Article 5 as the fear of how the other side would exploit it. The goal of the colloquy was agreement across the board, not on one article only. Now, as with negotiations with the European Union today, and you will appreciate that Britain and the European Union have been negotiating Brexit for a few years now, as with such negotiations, the principle is nothing is agreed till everything is agreed. The enthusiasm that greeted Article 5 was enthusiasm for the prospect of an agreement across the board, not enthusiasm for the idea of agreeing on one point only. Events were soon to prove how unrealistic that was. After the breakdown of the colloquy, uh, those who had been willing to make concessions were criticised by their own sides. On all sides, conciliation gave way to recrimination as the participants published works focusing not on the limited agreement reached, but on the reasons for the break failure of the colloquy. Now, the, the breakdown of the Regensburg Colloquy revealed the irreconcilable nature of the split between the two sides. One response was the reorganization of the Inquisition in 1542. Conciliation and negotiation had failed. The need now was for clear lines of demarcation. And that need was also accentuated by the attempted Cologne Reformation. At the conclusion of the, the Regensburg Diet, Cardinal Contarini called upon the bishops to undertake, quote, a Christian reformation, and the emperor Paul called upon them to introduce Christian order and reformation. And in 1543, Hermann von Wied, the Archbishop of Cologne, responded to this by seeking to reform his diocese, bringing in Busser and Melanchthon. Now, one short-term result of the colloquies was that extended personal contact had led to a personal rapport and friendship between Gropper and Busser. And for a while, it looked as if they could work together. At first, Hermann's initiative met with a positive reaction on all sides. But as the nature of the proposed reformation became clearer, 
the Cologne Cathedral chapter became implacably opposed. Despite the genuine warmth of their friendship after Regensburg, the result of the conflict at Cologne was that this friendship was replaced by open hostility. For Gropper, Bucer as a dialogue partner was one thing. Bucer seeking to reform Gropper's own church at Cologne was quite another. Bucer and Gropper both wrote extensively against each other in the course of the attempted reformation. In 1546, April 1546, the attempt ended with Hermann von Wied being suspended as archbishop, followed by his excommunication and deposition. Hermann protested and resisted for a while, but the following year he resigned from the archbishopric and left Cologne. And that can be regarded as the end of the phase of attempted reconciliation. Now, it was around this time that the Council of Trent was called, 1545, and this council set out to define Roman Catholic dogma in a firmly anti-Protestant manner, as, for example, in the Decree on Justification, 1547. Right, we turn now to the teaching of Article 5, and I've got eight different points to, to bring out. So what does Article 5 actually teach? Underlying the entire article is the idea of dupla justitia or double righteousness, that conversion brings both inherent and imputed righteousness. Now, you won't find the term itself, dupla justitia, in the article, but the article is built on the idea that there are these two different righteousnesses, if you like, inherent and imputed, and they are both clearly set out. Now, throughout this talk and in the book, I have opted to translate the word uh, duplex as double rather than twofold. Uh, I published some four or five articles on Regensburg earlier uh, in the early 2000s where I talked about twofold righteousness. But um, you can ask me a question afterwards if you want to know why I decided that, that double was actually a better translation. But it could, could be either. So what is the significance of this idea of double righteousness? Catholics and Protestants were offering two contrasting models of justification. The Protestant teaching was that God accepts us as righteous, which is what Protestants understand by justification, uh, because Christ's righteousness is reckoned or imputed to our account. That is, we are acceptable to God, not because of anything we have done, nor indeed because of the change that God brings about in us, but because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We are acceptable not for what we are, which remains imperfect, but in Christ. The Catholic teaching, by contrast, was that justification is about God changing us by the Holy Spirit and thus making us acceptable to himself. At baptism and conversion, uh, we are transformed within by the grace of God, which is a gratia, gratia faciens, a grace that makes us pleasing or acceptable, that brings about within us and inherent righteousness. Thus we have the contrast between the Protestant view that we become acceptable on the basis of imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ reckoned to our account, and the Catholic view that we become righteous through Christ's righteousness being imparted to us and or infused in us through an inner change which brings about an inherent righteousness. Now, the key contribution of Article 5 was to insist that with conversion, we receive both of these, inherent and imputed righteousness. The article does not simply place these two, imputed and inherent righteousness, 
side by side as unreconciled and conflicting concepts. We need imputed righteousness because both our own inherent righteousness and the righteousness of our works remain imperfect. So we cannot rely on them for our standing before God. Instead, it's on the basis of imputed righteousness, Christ's righteousness reckoned to our account, who are accepted by God. Now, how does Article 5 develop these ideas? And I'll summarize the teaching of the article in a, a few points. First of all, the term justification is understood in the Protestant sense of being accepted and reckoned righteous by God, although it is noted that the fathers understood it differently by the early church fathers to refer to inherent righteousness. Secondly, this justification or reckoning righteous is on account of Christ and his merit on the basis of imputed righteousness. It is not on the basis of inherent righteousness or the righteousness of works. Protestant concerns are effectively met by the clear and unambiguous insistence that acceptance is on the basis of imputed and not inherent righteousness. But it's also true that we are called righteous because of the good deeds that flow from inherent righteousness. Third point, third out of these seven points here, with the first point was double righteousness. Um, while God accepts us on the basis of imputed righteousness, he also, at the same time, gives us his Holy Spirit, through which we become partakers in the divine nature. We are renewed, we have an inherent righteousness, we receive the infusion of love, begin to do good works, and to fulfill the law. We should grow in virtues and grow in the renewal that we have received. And this growth comes through good works. So the Catholic concern for love and good works is clearly and unambiguously met by the insistence on the simultaneous gift of the Holy Spirit and love leading to good works. Sanctification is not presented as a consequence of justification, whether desirable or inevitable, but as a, a parallel and inseparable gift. Our next point, justification and gift of the Spirit are both received by faith. Faith that justifies is a living faith, and it's by the Holy Spirit that we move to this faith. In particular, this faith is efficacious through love although it's the function of love, a faith to appropriate God's gifts. Faith not only believes all that God has revealed, but also in particular assents to and acquires confidence from God's promises. It's okay to teach justification by faith alone, as long as this is not to the exclusion of teaching about repentance and good works. The key point to note here is that we are justified by our faith that is effectual through love, and this love leads to good works. The next point, uh, coming to faith involves hating sin in mind and will, and repenting. And these occur through the prevenient movement of the Holy Spirit. And we need that because we are enslaved to sin as a result of the fall. And also our free choice has a role to play concurring in good works. Next point, uh, while we are renewed by the Holy Spirit, this renewal is imperfect. And it's not on this that we should rely, but only on Christ's gifts of righteousness, his role as mediator and his promises. Finally, God has promised to reward our good works, both in this life and the next. 
Eternal life is an inheritance based on promise, but works are rewarded to the extent that they are done in faith and from the Spirit. So there is a summary of the teaching of the article. Now, ambiguities, two, two ambiguities in particular. At the colloquy, the evolving Protestant criticism of Article 5 complained about its ambiguities and the manner in which, quote, the other side was interpreting it, but did not concede that the article was incompatible with either the Augsburg Confession or Melanchthon's apology of the Augsburg Confession. So what were these ambiguities and misrepresentations? Melanchthon said these out in a number of times, and two key points recur. The first concerns status of good works. The article affirms that sin remains after conversion. The renewal brought by the Holy Spirit is imperfect, and we're therefore to depend not upon our inherent righteousness, but upon Christ's righteousness given to us as a gift. But, says Melanchthon, he needs to teach more clearly that the regenerate can never satisfy the law of God in this life, and that God is nonetheless pleased with our imperfect obedience. And Melanchthon also wants a clarification on the distinction between those sins which do and those which do not cause us to lose grace and the Holy Spirit. And secondly, there was considerable concern about the statement that the faith which justifies is a faith which is effectual through lust. The article states that we're justified or accepted as righteous on the basis of a living and efficacious love. Again, justification does not happen without the infusion of love, and the faith that justifies is effectual through love. But what's the problem, problem with this? None of the reformers wanted to say that it was possible to have saving faith without love. That saving faith is a living faith accompanied by love leading to good works was not in the least bit controversial. But the separated statements that were justified on the basis of an efficacious faith and that faith is efficacious through love, could be taken to mean that justification is on the basis, not of faith alone, but to use the Catholic formula of faith formed by love. Uh, thus it was claimed by some Catholics at Regensburg, such as Eck, that the article taught justification by love alone. After the colloquy, there were three different approaches to Article 5. Some opposed it, including Catholic theologians such as Eck. Most theologians uh, on both sides simply ignored it. After the failure of the colloquy, Article 5 was no longer of any practical relevance. The one theologian who continued vigorously to defend it was Busser. Contrini and Gropper ceased to refer to the article, but continued to hold the doctrines they had come to embrace at Regensburg especially concerning the need for imputed righteousness. Having clarified the teaching of the article, let us turn to the question we've set ourselves. Is Article 5 a compromising patchwork, as, as Luther maintained, or is it the substance of true doctrine, as Calvin maintained? We will consider here two key issues. First, the issue of faith being effectual through love, and secondly, the issue of duplex justitia, double righteousness. We also need to ask, compromising for whom? We're looking in particular at Brogger, the Catholic theologian, and at Busser and Calvin, the Reformed theologian. So first of all, the nature of saving faith. As noted above, the article states that we're justified or accepted as righteous 
on the basis of a living and efficacious faith. And the justification does not happen without the infusion of love. And the faith that justifies is effectual through love. As I said, this was taken by some to mean that justification is not on the basis of faith alone, but to use the Catholic formula of faith formed by love. Thus, it was claimed by some Catholics at Regensburg that the article taught justification by love alone. In particular, Eck was accused by various Protestants of teaching this. But when he actually wrote about Article 5, which he did a number of times, he makes no mention of this interpretation, but rather vilifies the article as harmful, mutilated, infantile declaration that melanchthonizes and you know, brings in Melanchthon's doctrine. So why the verbal claims? Basically, Eck was seeking to justify the fact that he had just signed this article. And he did so by spreading fake news about his teaching. But when it comes to setting out his considered opinion in writing, Eck makes no such claims. So it's, it's verbally at the colloquy to justify himself that Eck talks about the teaching, justification by love alone. But as I say, when he writes about it, which he does a couple of places at length, he makes no such claims. Now, such an interpretation that Article 5 teaches justification by love is clearly excluded by the article itself. The statement that justifying faith is effectual through love is immediately followed by the affirmation that this faith justifies by appropriating mercy and imputed righteousness, and that this righteousness is not accounted, not on account of any imparted worthiness or perfection. Acceptance on the basis of inherent righteousness, such as love, is very carefully excluded. But the fact that it could be claimed, however unreasonably, made many Protestants suspicious of the ambiguity of the formula. They were right to fear the teaching that were justified by faith alone, since that was also being taught by Piggius, who was at Ravensburg, and Sadeley, who was not. But neither of them claimed that this was what Article 5 taught. Unfortunately, a number of later Protestant interpreters have adopted X interpretation of the article as teaching justification by love as a way of attacking the article. But this is clearly a gross misrepresentation of it. Now, now in, a, in a, a recent, well, it's not, not so recent now, but in, in an ecumenical discussion a while back of the Augsburg Confession, the Catholic theologian Erwin Isolo posed a question to a Protestant participant. Isn't this controversy over faith and love merely vulgar? If Protestants maintain that faith is not purely intellectual and is a response of the heart to God, if it's a work of the spirit that changes the heart, then isn't this what Catholics understand by faith formed by love? There are two answers to this question. As we have seen, the Reformers did not wish to deny the faith that justifies is in fact faith formed by love. Though that was not their preferred terminology, although abuse was happening with it. Any difference here is hardly worth a debate, let alone dividing a church. The crucial issue, however, concerns the basis for our acceptance by God. Are we accepted on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, reckoned or imputed to our account and received by faith? Of course, together with faith, other virtues like love may be found, but it's not these that lay hold of Christ's righteousness. So that's the one view that we're justified and, and accepted on the basis of Christ's righteousness received by faith. Or are we accepted on the basis of the righteousness that now inheres within us 
and in particular, the love bestowed by the Holy Spirit, which makes it acceptable to God. So on this Catholic view, justification may be by faith formed by love, but it's essentially love that justifies. Now, this isn't a minor verbal quibble, but the, the difference between two fundamentally irreconcilable doctrines of justification. And there is no serious doubt where Article 5 stands on this. Acceptance on the basis of imputed righteousness is taught, and acceptance on the basis of inherent righteousness or love is denied. Contrary and Guapa understood this point clearly and went on to defend this after the colloquy. Eck did not accept it. Duplicitia. Uh, another issue is the doctrine of double righteousness. Isn't this evidence that the article is a mere patchwork of incompatible views? Or is it in fact a consistent statement, albeit making terminological concessions to both sides? Now, at first sight, the Patchwork accusation appears to be self-evidently true. Catholics spoke of an inherent, imparted righteousness, the inner transformation of sinners by the gracious act of the Holy Spirit. So they actually become righteous, so God accepts them as righteous because they really are righteous. Protestants spoke of an imputed righteousness, of Christ's righteousness being reckoned to our account so that, unworthy as we are, we are accepted by God on the count of Christ. Ravensburg links these two together and affirms that in conversion we receive both types of righteousness. Surely Luther was right to summarize this mockingly as the claim, so they are right and so are we. Or was he? The doctrine of double righteousness and its origins need to be explored a little more carefully, and we'll consider Gropper first. And then Buser and Calvin. And incidentally, he says, I don't think I come back to it here in this paper, but Luther did made that comment, they are right and so are we, but it wasn't actually about the idea of double righteousness. He doesn't actually object to that idea in his response at all. So let's turn to Gropper, Buser, and Calvin. Uh, and I should also say that since writing the book, I have produced an, an article which should be coming out in the not-too-distant future, which draws on material in the book and actually argues, beyond what it says in the book, that, that Luther himself, if he's consistent, should have been willing to sign the article. But that's, um, that'll probably be a bridge too far for some people, but I think it can be argued. Okay, so Gropper. Gropper's approach is very illuminating. Some have claimed him as the author of the double righteousness formula in his Enchiridion, written in, in the, the 1530s. There are various problems with this claim, not the least being the fact that the formula is not actually found in the Enchiridion. That work doesn't teach the imputation of righteousness, although it does get close at times. Neither is there any mention of imputed righteousness in the Worms draft, though the draft that Gropper drew up while at Ravensburg, during the debates, that does state, quote, that, that righteousness which is perfect in Christ he shares by gracious imputation of those who believe in him. But of course, Gopper did accept the final draft of Article 5, which gives a prominent role to imputed righteousness. After Reagan's book, he wrote a counterblast to the uh, Christische and Katholische Gegenberichte, and counterblast to Buster in connection with the um, Cologne Reformation. And, there, and in that, he continued to affirm imputed righteousness. The remission of sins, he says, is, quote, through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. 
We are justified by double righteousness, by imputed and inherent righteousness. Now, this, this talk did not please the Leuven or in Belgium or Leuven, as it's sometimes called, theology faculty, Catholic theology faculty, who complained about it in a letter to the Cologne theology faculty. They objected to Gropper's statement that justification includes, quotes, the remission and washing of sins through the imputation of past righteousness. In his response, Gropper doesn't apologize for his earlier stance, but dispense it vigorously from scripture, uh, especially Romans 3 to 5, and from tradition. In opposing Protestant heresy, he says, one must not also condemn those things, quotes, which are not only taught expressly in the apostolic writings, but have also always been received by the fathers and the church, which indeed are such that the entirety of Christian salvation and wisdom is located in. One such is the belief that sins are forgiven in the blood of Christ, provided, of course, that his righteousness or merit is imputed to us. So that's a very vigorous reaffirmation of it. It's actually the entirety of Christian salvation and wisdom is located in that state, he says. Now, after this, 1544, uh, Grumble went quiet on imputed righteousness. And in, in his Vahavtika unfortunate abuse of the following year, he doesn't deny imputed righteousness, but he speaks in terms of a polarization between those who teach imputed righteousness alone, of which he accuses uh, Busa and Melanchthon, and those who teach inherent righteousness alone, in the sense that uh, he himself no longer mentions imputed righteousness. So from 1545, Gropper is silent about imputed righteousness. Had he ceased to believe in it, or was he just being quiet about it? How did he react to the unfavorable reception afforded to imputed righteousness and duplicity at Trent? Fortunately for us, he answered this question clearly and explicitly in a private letter that he sent to Flug in 1552. There he answers the question, what about the imputed righteousness of Christ? And he dryly calls imputed righteousness, that righteousness, quote, quote, which the Lutherans oppress alone and of which our side are scarcely permitted to make a mention. So he acknowledges the obligation uh, not to, to think otherwise than is taught of Trent, but he then argues that Trent does not exclude the idea of imputed righteousness. So Gopher continued to hold to imputed righteousness in private. But at the end of his life, he was forced to declare his hand in public. In September 1558, he came to Rome to command of Pope Paul IV. Shortly after, Bishop Delfino claimed that 13 passages from Gropper's writers were heretical and submitted these to the Inquisition. Gropper responded two words, with two words, a shorter defense of his teaching, including the doctrine of imputed righteousness, and, and uh, twofold righteousness, double righteousness, and in a much fuller apologia, where he defends, in particular, his Enchiridion and his Gegenberichtung. In both of these works, both of these apologies, Gropper vigorously defends Duplexusitia, taking care to differentiate his position from that of the Lutheran heretics, and he also claims that his teaching is consistent with the Tridentine decree on justification. Now, Gropper had to defend these works, the Enchiridion and the Gekenberichtung, because these were published works and they had been attacked. But he goes far beyond this, and in his apologia includes in full 
his earlier vigorous defence of imputed righteousness against the Nervin faculty. He could have simply ignored that writing because it hadn't been published and it wasn't being attacked. But he not only defends it, but republishes it, writes it out again in full. Now, the one accusation against him, which Popper never uh, simply ignores, is the accusation that he had supported Article 5. And in his apologia, he neither defends nor disowns the article. He simply never mentions it. Gropper was vindicated, and Pope Paul IV criticised Gropper's slanders. Uh, and, and in fact, preached at Gropper's funeral shortly after, which was a great honour. Like many interpreters, I myself doubt whether Gropper's duplex justitia teaching really is compatible with Trent. But the fact remains that he believes so, and he had papal approval. Questions remain, however, and in 1596, following sharp criticism from Bellarmine, uh, Gropper's Enchiridion was placed on the index of forbidden books, though without specifying the name of the author. And it wasn't until the, the 20th century that Gropper was rehabilitated. Okay, so that's Gropper. We turn now to Busser and Calvin. In the chapter on justification, in the preface to his Romans commentary, Busser comes close to his Romans commentary being 1536. Busser there comes close to teaching Duplicitia. He is concerned to teach the inseparability of what Calvin would call justification and sanctification. He uses the term justitia primarily for sanctification, to refer to the righteousness imparted to us, which is effected in us by the Spirit. This is the internal righteousness which is manifested in good works. Alongside this imparted righteousness, alongside this imparted inherent righteousness, God also imputes righteousness to us. Busser only once in this chapter uses the noun, the noun you state here for this, imputes righteousness, normally using the adjective in, instead. So God pronounces us righteous, estimates righteousness so of. So Busser's preferred terminology in this chapter uh, of his commentary is to say that in justification, righteousness is imparted and the believer is reckoned righteous. This comes very close indeed to the language of double righteousness. But Busey did not, before the conflict, to my knowledge, explicitly set these two types of righteousness, inherent and imputed, side by side in parallel. Nor have I managed to find any other theologian who did, does so, in the sense the Regensburg sense. So the Regensburg article appears to contain a small but highly significant terminological development. It was, one might say, one small step for a colloquy, one giant leap for Christian theology. Now, as has been noted, Buster continued to defend Article 5 after the colloquy, writing over a 100 pages of uh, explanation and defense of the formula on justification that was proposed at Ravensburg in order to resolve the controversy. That's the English translation of, of, of a section that he wrote, the 100 pages, which come in the 1542 response to Pigius. They're, they're turning then to Calvin. Calvin is another theologian that simply ignored Article 5 after the colloquy. And in fact, the comment that I quoted above is the only time he ever refers to Article 5. But that doesn't mean that he went back on his opinion on it. Although his, his assessment of the colloquy as a whole remained negative throughout. Now, Calvin didn't use the term duplex justitia 
prior to Regensburg. But the idea in the sense um, that is understood in Article 5 is found in his references to a double grace, duplex gratia, referring to justification and sanctification. He did not, in his account of sanctification, use the term justitia in inherent, inherent righteousness, but his teaching on regeneration and sanctification is all about an inner renewal by the Holy Spirit, uh, and he is happy to refer to this as justitia. Thus, justitia is one of the fruits that follow from our renovation. As we grow in the Christian life, we become increasingly like God, righteous. But when we turn to the section on justification in the Institutes, there is a strict contrast between human righteousness, which is soil, and imputed righteousness in Christ. The exceptions to this come mainly in the chapter in which he expands God's acceptance of believers' works as righteous, where he's more positive about them, though as the fruit of our relationship with God, not the cause of our relationships. So why is Calvin in his institute more willing to concede human righteousness in one context than in the other? When the question is growth in the Christian life, he's happy to refer to human righteousness. But when the issue is acceptance by God, he emphasizes the worthiness of human righteousness. In the former context, the reality of human righteousness is the issue in the context of sanctification. In the latter context, its imperfection is the issue. For this reason, although in the context of sanctification, Calvin's happy to talk of human righteousness, he does not assert this alongside imputed righteousness as a second righteousness. When he wishes to juxtapose the two, he prefers to echo the language of 1 Corinthians 1.30. And so he repeatedly refers to our righteousness, i.e. imputed, and our sanctification, inherit, inherit. And that's the way Calvin expresses his own version of the of righteousness. At the Worms Colloquy, immediately prior to Reagan's book, Calvin acknowledged that there is a righteousness of works, but this must be subordinated to our righteousness of faith. He makes no mention of the double righteousness formula, but did, contrary to his practice in the Institutes, set alongside one another a righteousness of faith and a strictly subordinated righteousness of works. At the Worms Colloquy, Calvin was the Protestant theologian most willing to concede a righteousness of works. So he's likely to encourage those who work for agreements at Ravensburg. Verbally, this comes closer to Ravensburg than does the Institute, but not in terms of content. The double righteousness of Ravensburg is imputed and inherent. Inherent righteousness refers to the inner righteousness brought about by the Holy Spirit, uh, which Calvin calls sanctification and regeneration. Good works are the fruit or outworking of this. But the, the second form of righteousness at Vaughan's is the righteousness of works, which, which is rather different. So we need to distinguish between the doctrine of double righteousness and the terminology. It's possible to have the former without the latter. Article 5 has the terminology to the extent that inherent and imputed righteousness are held together as described above. But it doesn't actually use the phrase double righteousness. The great majority of Protestant theologians would have held to the doctrine to the extent that they believe both in a genuine change wrought by the Holy Spirit, regeneration and sanctification in other words, and in our acceptance by God on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed to justification. Not all of these theologians would have used righteousness language to describe the former of our sanctification. Some, like Calvin, were prepared to refer to sanctification 
of the fruit of sanctification in terms of righteousness, but didn't go so far as to link the two righteousnesses together in the, into a double righteousness. So it can be said that the great majority of Protestant theologians held to the doctrine of double righteousness in that they distinguished justification from sanctification and held that the imperfection of, of sanctification, um, that because of the imperfection of sanctification, we are accepted on the basis of imputed righteousness. But most of these theologians did not use the double righteousness language to explain it. And so for these Protestant theologians, the Regensburg formula was a terminological rather than a doctrinal concession, which of course is exactly what Calvin says in his letter to Pharrell. In his polemical works of the 1540s, Calvin continued to affirm his belief in duplex gratia. So in his 1547 antidote, he comments that grace is double because Christ, Christ both justifies and sanctifies. He also states that there is a double grace in baptism, in that we are offered both forgiveness and regeneration. Two years later, in his response to the interim, he again refers to this double grace that Christ bestows on us. He does, however, in 1559, add to his 1539 affirmation of duplex gratia, a criticism of Osiander for confusing it. But it's in his response to the Augsburg injury of 1548 that Calvin comes closest to affirming double righteousness. The interim repeatedly affirms an inherent righteousness, but also admits that this is imperfect and we need to be forgiven through the perfect righteousness of Christ, uh, but without using the phrase imputed righteousness. Calvin's response is very moderate. He admits it's impossible to be reconciled to God without inherent righteousness, but insists that while these two, reconciliation and inherent righteousness, cannot be separated, they need to be distinguished like justification and sanctification. And it's on the basis of imputed righteousness that we are accepted by God. This is the only time that Calvin speaks positively about inherent righteousness, and he does so only because he has to respond to the interim. But it makes clear that he did not reject the idea, even though it was not his own preferred terminology. Well, as well as admitting the existence of both inherent and imputed righteousness, Calvin also admits that the believer has a righteousness of works as well as a righteousness of faith, although the, the former, the righteousness of works, is subordinate to the latter. Calvin does not appear to be making any distinction between inherent righteousness and the righteousness of works. I.e., he's not distinguished between distinguishing between infused and acquired righteousness. You can pick up among the questions if you want. The righteousness of faith is imputed righteousness, and the righteousness of works is inherent righteousness. Calvin's complaint is not against those who affirm these two kinds of righteousness, but against those who confound them together. In his response to the teaching on justification and injury, Calvin aff affirms in a way that is not so explicit elsewhere the idea of double righteousness, inherent and imputed, the righteousness of works and of faith, although without using the term double righteousness. Given this moderate uh, response to the interim, whose doctrine of justification is considerably less evangelical than that of Article 5, it's not surprising that Calvin's assessment of the article should have been so favorable. Calvin's general opposition to talk of double righteousness was because he understood it to mean that our acceptance by God is based in part on our own works righteousness, an idea that is explicitly rejected by Article 5. Thus, in his 1557 commentary on Psalm 143.2, Calvin affirms against the papists 
There is no middle path between justification by faith and justification by works. David in this passage did not imagine a double righteousness. And again in the 1559 Institutes, Calvin again rejects the term double righteousness when opposing Osiander's teaching on justification. But there's no reason to think he's thinking of Article 5 here, because not least because Article 5 never uses the term double righteousness. But while Calvin generally avoided and occasionally denied talk of double righteousness, he consistently approved talk of a double grace. While he had hesitations about the double righteousness formula uh, of, art, well, of Article 5, in as much as Article 5 uses it, the substance of, of Reagan's double righteousness doctrine he affirmed with his own duplex gratia terminology. Right, brief conclusion. My conclusion is that from the standpoint of Protestant theology of justification and sanctification, there is no inconsistency in accepting Article 5. Interestingly, Bellamy attributes the article to Busser, being unwilling to admit that any Catholics had a role in producing it. Grover felt he was consistent to continue to hold to a doctrine of double righteousness. In my opinion, he was indeed being consistent to his own theology, but that theology was not actually consistent with Trent. But from the perspective of a Reformation theology of justification and sanctification, Article 5 is not to be seen as an inconsistent patchwork, that is the substance of true doctrine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library of Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules, at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, spread the word, and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just $1. Until next time, Thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Greystone.